To some, it produces images of government-controlled communications and mass media, telling the people only what the government wants them to hear. To others, it raises the horrid specter of Joseph Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda minister, practicing the technique of the big lie, which has incorrectly become synonymous with propaganda. Still to others, the mere mention of psychological operations or warfare invokes visions of mind control through some mysterious means of brainwashing. It should be clear that modern psychological operations, or PSYOP, is none of those things. Major Ed Rouse, retired. Sometimes our imaginations are captured by the possibility of alternative explanations. Join me as we explore the historical events and public state of mind that influenced the appeal and popularity of the most enduring alternative theories out there. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. Hey there, theoriologists. Well, as usual, the research produced a lot more information than I anticipated. So, this quickly went from a two-parter to a three-parter. This, along with uh, taking some time with the family for a 4th of July uh, weekend, meant that there was a bit of a delay in getting this episode out. Thanks for being patient, but I think you're really going to enjoy all of this. So let's get to it. With this episode, we continue our discussion of Jade Helm 15 by introducing ourselves to the world of psychological operations and gain an understanding of the structure of Special Operations Command within the military. There is really no way of discussing PSYOPs without turning the discussion into a history lesson in psychological operations and warfare, as well as a review uh, of the evolving strategy within the U.S. military. We glossed over the full industry of PSYOPs and special operations in the first episode, so this time we are giving full review. I wanted to really understand this beyond the simple Wikipedia entry, so I went right to the source. In doing so, I found excellent information that provided the history, strategy, and future directions for psychological operations. Before we begin, I want to credit those primary sources used for today's episode. The first is a publication titled Psychological Operations, Principles and Case Studies, which was edited by U.S. Air Force Colonel Frank Goldstein and Air Force Reserve Colonel Benjamin Finley Jr. The second source is a simple but extremely informative site called SciWarrior.com, which is operated by retired U.S. Army Major 
Ed Rouse. Finally, there were various articles and a lot of information on the usapova.com site. This is the website for the Psychological Operations Veterans Association. All of these sites get a big thank you from me. They've put out a ton of information and provided a wonderful history and made research extremely easy. Now, I think in order to understand PSYOPs as a tactic and methodology, we must understand where this is housed, at least within the U.S. military, and the structure of the U.S. Special Operations Command. In Part 1, we learned that Jade Home 15, as an operation, was helmed by SOCOM. This is really a broad stroke of a description. U.S. Special Operations Command is operated out of MacDill Air Force Base in the state of Florida. The SOCOM mission is pretty straightforward. Quote, develops and employs fully capable special operations to conduct global special operations and activities as part of the joint force to support persistent, networked, and distributed global combatant commands, operations, and campaigns against state and non-state actors to protect and advance U.S. policies and objectives. It was established in 1987 and is responsible for civil affairs, hostage and rescue and recovery, counterinsurgency, military information support operations, and that's actually the current title for PSYOPs, counterterrorism, security force assistance, countering weapons of mass destruction, special reconnaissance, direct action, unconventional warfare, foreign humanitarian assistance, preparation of the environment, and foreign internal defense. SOCOM executes its mission through command components, or branches, that each have a specific role and responsibility. The Army SOCOM, the Navy Special Warfare Command, the Air Force SOCOM, Marine Corps SOCOM, and the Joint Special Operations Command, which, as it sounds, is a unified command of special operations. The Joint SOCOM is responsible for exercises and training, which is why it was overseeing the Jade Helm 15 exercise. Additionally, SOCOM operates globally through seven theater-level commands. In all, U.S. Special Operations Command has a roster of over 70,000 personnel. It's big, and frankly, they do some pretty cool stuff. Now, I know we just went through a big list of facts, and you really didn't need to be taking notes or anything. I summarized this information from the fact sheet available on the SOCOM.mil website, which goes into much more detail if you're interested. What is important for our discussion is that list of responsibilities, specifically the Military Information Support Operations, or MISO. MISO, as I indicated, is the current term for psychological operations used within the U.S. SOCOM, although it, it doesn't seem to be universal. Uh, as the Army uh, SOCOM has since actually resumed the use of the term PSYOP. After our, our discussion of PSYOP as a topic, we'll get back to this naming convention as it is really indicative of debate and disagreement within the U.S. government in view and perspective of PSYOP activities. It might even offer a clue as to the approach taken with Jade Home 15. <laughs> wink, wink. Before that, though, let's, let's get to the topic of psychological operations. So, what are PSYOPs? 
Department of Defense Dictionary of Military and Associated Terms broadly defines strategic psychological activities as planned psychological activities in peace and war, which normally pursue objectives to gain the support and cooperation of friendly and neutral countries and to reduce the will and the capacity of hostile or potentially hostile countries to wage war. Now, it's also important to stress, expanding on this definition, that the policy of psychological operations within the U.S. military in peacetime do not involve misinformation or any concept of disinformation. To put it another way, from SciWarrior.com, psychological operations may be defined broadly as the planned use of communications to influence human attitudes and behavior, to create and target groups, behavior, emotions, and attitudes that support the attainment of national objectives. The form of communication can be as simple as spreading information covertly by word of mouth or through any means of multimedia. I think you can already tell that this will be interesting. After a quick break, we're going to explore the purpose of PSYOP within military operation. Remember, at the end of the day, we're learning about this in order to make a better assessment of the experiences surrounding Jade Helm 15. So keep that in mind as the information unfolds. Howdy, theriologists. Have you ever heard of pink pills for pale people? Ever considered trying the delicacy of tilapia-wrapped bear claw? Have you ever been to Kokomo, Indiana? Well, if random trivia is your thing, and you like a little challenge, have I got a podcast for you. Join me and fellow podcasters, Moxie from Your Brain on Facts, Sean, host of Stories of Your and Yours, and Eric from Fan Theory World, as we take each other on to task in a quiz show styled roundtable, offering up truths and lies, challenging ourselves to determine what is truth and what is fiction. In our premier Patreon-exclusive show, Spot the Lie. Patreon members at any level have access to this new show. This, along with other rewards, comes at the cost of less than a cup of coffee each month. And your support, as always, helps to grow conspiracy theology. Now, if you're ready to support the show, give Spot the Lie a listen, or just curious about what else Patreon has to offer, go to patreon.com slash conspiracy theology to check out my page. Then stick around and search out your other favorite podcasts. Now, back to the show. Okay, so we have a definition, but what is it? What is the purpose? PSYOP and its application within military campaigns, as the name implies, is a battle of the mind. The primary weapon is information, through sight and sound. It can be disseminated interpersonally or through audio and visual means, i.e. radio, television, internet, word of mouth, leaflets, posters, etc. What is important is the message and its effect on the recipients. And the purpose? Well, to avoid conflict. Conflict in a military context usually involves bloodshed on your side and theirs. The fundamental national security objective is to deter conflict. 
This is clearly a psychological phenomenon because it occurs in the mind of a potential enemy. When an enemy perceives that it would be too costly for him to attack, or that he would probably lose if he started a war, then he elects not to attack, and the conflict has been deterred. His mental decision, based upon his perception of our capabilities and resolve, is the key element in the process of deterrence. Military PSYOP, in support of this fundamental defense objective, then should seek to clarify and focus this perception. I know it sounds rather straightforward. Tell your side what they need to hear to boost morale, and tell the other side what they need to hear in order to weaken their resolve. Well, it's not that easy. From everything I've gathered through the research, it's actually quite a challenging task that requires finesse, forethought, and a great deal of planning. A simple thing like terminology can be a major factor in engendering public acceptance or support for any policy. A good example of this can be found in the Iran hostage crisis, which took place in 1979. U.S. leaders were led into referring to the terrorist kidnappers as students. With simple terminology, many viewed the U.S. response as that of force against activist students instead of a rescue action required to free hostages from terrorists. I'm sure that even just hearing the two desperate terms is causing you to question which perspective to hold on the matter. There are many historical examples of PSYOP application throughout U.S. military conflict. But before looking at some of those, a couple more things. First, all of my sources for this episode emphasized a key point. Psychological operations are not propaganda campaigns. PSYOP is the dissemination of truthful information, delivered in a calculated manner. Propaganda, on the other hand, can be anything, usually based on a desired outcome rather than fact. Second, PSYOP consists of three distinct types. According to PsyWarrior.com, those three are tactical PSYOP, which is addressed to a specific enemy to induce a specific action. Two, strategic PSYOP, which is aimed at a larger audience and put into effect through carefully planned campaigns. And finally, three, consolidated PSYOP missions, which are intended to assist civil and military authorities in consolidating gains, such as establishing law and order or reestablishing a civil government. Ultimately, all types of PSYOP activities aim to produce the following effects. 1. Reduce morale and combat efficiency within the enemy's ranks. 2. Promote mass dissension within and defections from enemy combat units and or revolutionary cadre. 3. Support our own and allied forces cover and deception operations. And 4. Promote cooperation, unity, and morale with, within one's own and allied units, as well even within resistance forces behind enemy lines. Okay, now for the fun part, the examples. There are literally dozens and dozens to cite, but SciWarrior.com did an excellent job of citing several ideal and effective examples that truly convey the full gamut of possibilities within psychological operations as they've been, been employed in the past, while showing us truly how far back these tactics go into history. So let's go through a select few from SciWarrior.com. 
Perhaps one of the earliest examples of psychological warfare was attributed to Alexander the Great of Macedonia. Alexander had conquered most of the known world during his reign. With each region he conquered, he left behind soldiers to keep control of the newly conquered area. Eventually, there came a point when Alexander realized that he had stretched his army too thin and was now in danger of losing to a large opposing force. Alexander's only option was to retreat and regroup forces with the armies he left behind. However, to do so would certainly incite the opposing force to pursue him and very possibly capture or defeat his now smaller army. Alexander knew that he could intimidate the opposing force. They would be scared to follow his uh, his army. Alexander instructed his armorers to make several oversized armor breastplates and helmets that would fit giants, men uh, seven to eight feet tall. As Alexander and his forces withdrew during the night, they left behind the oversized armor. The oversized armor was, of course, found by the opposing forces, who then believed they had come close to engaging in a battle with giants, a battle that they would have surely lost. The oversized armor, coupled with the stories they had heard from travelers of the savagery of Alexander's army, caused enough doubt and fear that they elected not to pursue Alexander's army as he retreated. Another example can be found with the Mongol leader Genghis Khan, who was widely known for leading hordes of savage horsemen across Russia and into Europe. While not totally unfounded, the Mongols' image of total barbaric domination was greatly enhanced by Khan's use of psyop, deception, operational security, and targeting his adversary's decision-making process. Quote-unquote agents of influence were sent in advance of his armies to do face-to-face psyop, telling of brutality and large numbers in the Mongol army. Khan used deception to create the illusion of invincible numbers by using rapid troop maneuver, making his army look larger than it really was. He had a network of horsemen called arrow riders to communicate quickly with his commanders, and he targeted enemy messengers to prevent enemy commanders from communicating with each other. When the Mongol warriors traveled, they dragged large objects behind their horses to create dust storms. These dust storms made the advancing troops appear to be much larger than they were. Genghis Khan ordered his soldiers to burn hundreds of extra fires at night, which also made the armies appear larger. Mongol soldiers fired arrows with small holes in them, which made the arrows whistle as they traveled through the air. The whistling sound, of course, was intended to terrify the opponent. All these actions caused a weakness in their enemy's psyche, and the Mongols were feared wherever they went. Now, (laughs) you could absolutely consider the previous examples to be psychological operations. While there was an air of deception used by both Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan, to bolster the impression of scale of their forces, they were without a doubt overwhelming, lethal, and nearly invincible in their time. Their tactical and strategic efforts were employed primarily to ensure that opposing forces did not doubt the reality of the overwhelming force they would face. On the other hand, World War II has some pretty wild examples of what we would call propaganda being employed. 
During World War II, radio broadcasts became a major means of passing propaganda to the enemy. Japan used a notorious Tokyo Rose to broadcast music, propaganda, and words of discouragement to our, to our allied forces. The Germans used Mildred Gillar, better remembered as Axis Sally. The Americans used deception and psychological operations as well to convince the German high command that the D-Day invasion wasn't going to be launched at Normandy, but at Calais. Now, Psy Warrior cites one of the best and most in- innovative uses of psychological warfare during uh, World War II to be uh, attributed to a radio broadcast by the British Broadcasting Corporation, the BBC. During the period of May through September of 1940, when the German invasion of England seemed imminent, a regular BBC radio program that was easily heard and often listened to by the Germans began a series of English-language lessons for the would-be invaders. These broadcasts, of course, were presented in flawless German. The British announcer stated the purpose of these broadcasts like this. And so it will be best if you learn a few useful phrases in English before visiting us. For your first lesson, we take the Canal Überfahrt, the channel crossing. Now just repeat after me. Das Boot sinkt. The boat is sinking. The boat is sinking. Das Wasser ist kalt. The water is cold. Sehr kalt. Very cold. Now, I will give you a verb that should be very useful. Again, please, repeat after me. Ich brenne. I am burning. Du brennst. You are burning. Er brennt. He is burning. Wir brennen. We burn. Ihr brennt. You are burning. Sie brennen. They are burning. Okay, so this was a rather crude material, but it actually proved really effective. The phrases about burning in the English Channel seemed to confirm the intensive rumors already being spread by British agents on the continent that the British had really perfected an apparatus with which they were going to set fires in the English Channel and on the English beaches whenever Hitler launched his invasion. Although not true by any means, the rumors were so well planned and cleverly spread that to apparently even years later, even possibly decades later, many Germans believed them. Documents found after the war confirmed that the German high command believed the British had workable plan to set fire to the English Channel. You have to admit, that was brilliant. All propaganda completely baseless and unfactual, but effective in outcome. But let us get back to the psychological operations that are meant to deter conflict rather than deceive. We could go conflict by conflict and example by example, but let's jump forward to the 1990s. The Gulf War brought a whole new meaning to the use of multimedia in psychological operations. One of the best examples of PSYOP used during Desert Storm is that of the successful use of loudspeakers. The Allied coalition effectively isolated, both physically and psychologically, a large element of the Iraqi forces on Falaka Island. Rather than reduce the island by direct assault, 
a tactical PSYOP team from the 9th PSYOP Battalion aboard a UH-1N helicopter flew aerial loudspeaker missions around the island, with Cobra gunships providing escort. The message told the adversary below to surrender the next day in formation at the radio tower. The next day, over 1,400 Iraqis, including a general officer, waited in formation at the radio tower to surrender to the Marine forces without a single shot having been fired. How successful was the U.S. uh, PSYOP campaign in Desert Storm? The International Red Cross reported that nearly 87,000 Iraqi soldiers turned themselves over to coalition forces, most of them clutching things such as leaflets or hiding them in their clothing. All incidents of surrender were bloodless. Now, I think it's safe to say that psychological operations are an effective approach both on and off the battlefield. And I'm sure that many would agree that it appears to be a preferable alternative, when possible, to the untempered use of force. It seems, though, that this is not the consensus. I even titled the episode series The Secret PSYOP, which gives a sinister connotation. If PSYOP techniques are so effective and apparently beneficial, why would there be opposition? Two reasons. First, even though psychological operations have been used for centuries throughout the globe, in various conflicts, and by many countries and military leaders, it's really only been since World War II that PSYOP has been recognized to stand on its own as an effective tool by the U.S. military. The second part to the answer lies in perception. To some, it inspires images of government-controlled information, right? Telling people only what they want them to hear. For others, it conjures up actions by Hitler's propaganda minister, Josef Goebbels, practicing the techniques of the big lie. PsyWarrior.com points out that still others, at the mention of psychological operations, invoke visions of mind control and brainwashing. So, it has an image problem. This is when we circle back to the discussion of MISO. The U.S. often discounted the full use of sophisticated media in early days because it didn't recognize the vital role. It wasn't until the Reagan administration in the 80s that the need was fully recognized for specific focus and the establishment of SOCOM. Then, in 2010, a directive came down from the Department of Defense to change the name from PSYOP, which seemed too menacing apparently, to the Military Information Support Operations. According to then-Secretary of Defense Robert Gates, the term PSYOP was misleading. Although PSYOP activities rely on truthful information, credibly conveyed, the term PSYOP tends to connotate propaganda, brainwashing, manipulation, and deceit. The stated goal of replacing PSYOP as a term was to diminish the supposed menacing connotation and negative perceptions of said term. It was Gates' hope that changing the name would encourage cooperation between the military and partner agencies in the federal in the federal government, particularly, apparently, the State Department. Here's the problem as I see it. It is what it is. In World War I, there was a propaganda department. In World War II, the term psychological warfare was favored. PSYOP emerged during Vietnam, but the other terms were used up through the 1980s. Now, MISO is the watered-down term of choice, but the most accurate is clearly psychological operations. 
They are activities and tactics that employ psychological and behavioral stimulus to elicit a desired result. Military information support groups, well, that just sounds like some sort of IT department. Regardless the name, the group still employs the use of shaped and controlled information, dissemination, uh, regardless the name, the group still employs the use of shaped and controlled information with dissemination to the populace. Some people are never going to trust it. So if there are those that don't think it should be employed so obviously and upfront, if at all, then how would you convince them of the value of properly executed PSYOP strategies? Perhaps you might attempt to exemplify what happens when PSYOP tactics are not employed and foreign propaganda is not countered. Maybe you could do this in conjunction with some planned military exercise. Perhaps tacked on at the beginning? Eh? Eh? <laughs> okay, next episode. In part three of our series, we will examine just that possibility. Now that we know the story that unfolded during the days leading up to Jade Helm 15 and have an understanding of just what PSYOPs are and by whom they are executed, I think we have enough of the pieces to evaluate the situation and come to some conclusions. Until then, dive into the links in the show notes and see if you can't unfold some of the Jade Helm mystery before then. And if you really just want a good laugh in the meantime, remember the pilot episode of Spot the Lie is over on my Patreon page. A few podcasting friends and I take each other to task in the style of Two Truths and a Lie. And I can tell you, it was hilariously fun to record. Now, thanks again for joining me today. As always, please click that follow or subscribe button so that you don't miss the discussion. You can email me at contact at conspiracytheoryology.com, which I invite you to do readily if there's anything I missed today or if there's anything that you think we should uh, focus on or needs to be clarified. As always, you can find me on the socials at TheoryologyPod. All the info can be found at conspiracytheoryology.com, including how to support the show. Music is by adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. So, until next time, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology.